You are listening to season four of the Bitcoin Takeover podcast, a 10 part series in which hardware wallet makers and breakers get interviewed. Before I introduce this episode's guests, let's hear a few words from the show's sponsors. LXMI is a European cryptocurrency exchange whose name is inspired by Lakshmi, the Hindu goddess of wealth, good fortune, and prosperity. It's one of the regulated and legal cryptocurrency exchanges. On LXMI, you can buy bitcoins with most fiat currencies, and you can also do trading with top altcoins. They follow the Not Your Keys, Not Your Bitcoins philosophy with their integrated non-custodial wallet, which helps you manage your own private keys. So if you're into trading, then you don't have to worry about having your crypto frozen by whatever political decisions, since you're empowered to hold and move your coins whenever you wish. It's great to have new players like LXMI that respect your financial sovereignty. LXMI is launching in 2020, and for more information, please check out lxmi.io. If you're not into trading, it's recommended to move your coins to a hardware wallet or some other form of cold storage, and in this episode, you're about to find out why. Please keep in mind that this is just an ad for a sponsor of the show. It's not meant to serve as financial advice, and you're responsible to do your own research before buying anything and act according to your own decisions. Embrace your financial sovereignty with agency and precaution. Hey you! Looking for the simplest way to get started sending Satoshis on the Lightning Network? Then sign up with your social account on BottlePay now. BottlePay is your premium Lightning service for unfairly cheap and effortless Bitcoin payments. It is powerful enough to offer all of the payment features you need while also being simple enough for no coiners to understand. No more confusion and headaches. Send Satoshis instantly to anyone on a supported social network in a couple of clicks. Log in today at bottle.li and receive 1,000 free Satoshis to get you started sending and receiving Bitcoins. Follow the steps to become a power user and earn even more. Head over to bottle.li and get started now. Hello and welcome to Season 4, Episode 2 of the Bitcoin Takeover Podcast. I am Vlad and today I have two guests who work and have developed Shift Crypto Security, one of the rising companies in the hardware wallet market. And just in case you didn't get accustomed to the format by now, the whole season is going to be about hardware wallet makers and their breakers. And the names of my guests are Douglas Beckham, or Bakum, as it's pronounced in German, and Jonas Schnelli, who is also a Bitcoin Core developer. And this is going to be very interesting. So hello, gentlemen. Hi, Vlad. Thanks for this opportunity. No, thank you. Yeah, thanks. Because there's a lot going on and I noticed that the Bitbox O2 is getting some traction. 
I noticed that this, it's not quite the holiday season, but on Black Friday, I saw that Blockstream had some sort of offer with the Bitbox L2, the Ledger, and the Trezor. So you're basically positioned on their podium. And also there was this video of somebody who tried to order more than four devices and was not able. So if you have this kind of limitation in place, I presume that you, you're starting to have a demand for the product. Yeah, it's slowly picking up. So we just released our uh, Bitbox O2 hardware wallet, which is our second version device, um, I guess just a couple of months ago. Uh, and so uh, we spent a lot of time in the last years developing it and we're quite, quite happy with the response we've gotten so far. Uh, and we're looking forward for, uh, uh, you know, to keep, keep promoting it, keep hearing feedback and keep trying to improve on it. And Douglas, as far as I know, you're the creator and designer of the original Bitbox, right? Yes. So again, the Bitbox O2 is our second version. The first one I created and designed myself um, a number of years ago, about four years ago now. Uh, and so I do have a, a quite a bit of technical uh, background to be able to do that, of course. Uh, but right now my role is the uh, CEO. So uh, fortunately and unfortunately, I don't get so much chance to do the technical work anymore. Okay. That's useful to know. So my first question for both of you is why should Bitcoiners buy a hardware wallet? Because when you ask some security specialists, they're going to say that it's better to just use a paper wallet or some other cold storage method. And some people even say that it's better to get a general purpose item that you cannot distinguish by manufacturer. Yeah, there's, uh, there's different layers or different thoughts about what's most secure. Um, I mean, in general, if you're going to use the paper wallet, so where, where, where do, you, do you generate your entropy? Do you going to roll dices, which is really complicated? Or do you going to use a computer to generate the paper wallet, which uh, during the moment of your generation of that that actual seed, uh, you may be uh, compromised at that point. So that's that's A, the critical moment. And then B, what if you want to spend your coins? Assume you have created a secure paper wallet that at some point you want to sell the coins or send them forward. What are you going to do with the paper wallet? So you need to enter the seed again into your computer or uh, eventually an insecure device. And if that device is compromised, um, the funds may be redirected to the attacker. And hardware wallets, they come with very limited attack surface. They have almost no IOs, so it's like secure on the hardware end. And it's also having usually a non-Linux dedicated operating system, which is like super small amounts of lines of codes compared to, you know, Android with probably 10 millions of lines of code just for the kernel. And uh, I guess... By limiting that, we can make sure, or horror wallets can make sure it's like the best or the least amount of attack vectors possible. Okay. I know that generally hardware wallets tend to be very secure unless you have some sort of physical access to them. And maybe that this applies to any security device. It's safe until somebody was very skilled and knows ex exactly what to do, gets their hands on them, and possibly that's where the compromise can happen. 
it's yeah it's always you know the more money you're willing to spend to compromise a device uh the more likely is it that you're going to access uh, the secrets on it um there is nothing unhackable that's just not possible so it's like how uh, how secure uh, you make things so you can take one hardware wallet but then you can reuse multiple hardware wallets in a kind of a split portfolio a situation or in, in a multi-sig um, but at the end, it's, 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 everything is hackable. It's just very complicated. And the Bitbox 02 also protects from physical theft. So it's like we're, we're, we're trying to make it impossible for, for physical theft to access the funds. So if a user wants to buy a hardware wallet and they're not quite decided, they don't know what to do, why should they go for the Bitbox O2? What is special about it as compared to the competition? Yeah, I can try, try to answer this one. Um, and so there are uh, a number of options and more options coming out to the market. And I think um, uh, in general, it, that's a good thing. Um, there's solid competition. I think it's a good thing to have, uh, you know, if, if you have a lot of funds, it's probably a good idea to have a couple of different hardware wallets just in order to uh, reduce uh, some of the manufacturer risk if, if a problem happens in one of them. Uh, but for our uh, hardware wallet in particular, we do think it has some advantages over the competition, some strong advantages, uh, both in terms of um, usability, uh, also in terms of security, uh, which I can touch on uh, very quickly. So usability, um, when we, when we designed the Bitbox 02, we tried to take a lot of lessons uh, from our Bitbox 01 um, and apply them to the Bitbox 02. In terms of usability, one of the most popular features of our first hardware wallet was um, the micro SD card. Uh, and so we focused talk a lot on uh, simplicity and the micro SD card is one of the, the best ways to do that. Uh, what that refers to specifically is when you first create a hardware wallet, um, <clears throat> you need to uh, handle the backup uh, safely. And uh, the common way to do that is with this mnemonic word list. Uh, and so you write down 12 or 24 words onto a piece of paper. Uh, then you have to re-enter it into the device uh, in order to check it and so on. And the feedback we got from new users and our resellers is that this is a quite uh, complicated process. Uh, they call it mnemonic anxiety, where users, especially new users, they don't really understand the concept. And so it's really stressful uh, during this whole process that can take 20 to 30 minutes uh, to write down each, each letter correctly uh, and so on and so on. And so with the micro SD card, um, we eliminate the need for that where the backup is created instantly on the SD card. Uh, and so a back concept of a backup is really easy to understand uh, and just saves a lot of, uh, lot of uh, stress during the whole process. And so you can set it up. You can also recover a wallet very quickly. Um, with the Bitbox O2 for, for more uh, expert users or the people, um, I guess, more comfortable uh, handling mnemonics. We also do offer the option to uh, display the mnemonic on the screen and to record it down onto paper. Um, so that, that's one way in terms of usability. I think one of the unique things with our uh, second hardware wallet also is the user input. And so we have touch sliders on the sides of the device, and those things allow different types of uh, 
gestures. So a tap, slide, hold, uh, things like that. Allows a lot of flexibility there, and we think we can do a lot of really interesting UX with that. And also having the sliders on the side of the device instead of over the screen. Uh, you don't, your finger's not in the way of the screen, so it's a bit better usability experience that way. Um, we've gotten a lot of good feedback uh, on the uniqueness, and uh, we think also in terms of uh, the different things you need to do uh, on a device, such as password entry or uh, scrolling through data, uh, that we can do this in a much more efficient and even fun way. Uh, and so we're quite, quite uh, happy about the response to that from the initial users so far. Uh, in terms of security, um, to, uh, when, when we had our uh, small uh, meeting in Berlin, uh, we talked about it a little bit. I'll try to summarize very quickly. <laughs> um, we, I guess, uh, looking at Ledger and Trezor, I think they're the, the main uh, market leaders at the moment. Um, they do security, or there are, their security architecture is a bit different, I guess kind of extremes, uh, and we try to take the best of both worlds. So Trezor, for example, uh, is open source, which is a really great thing, um, but they use a general purpose microcontroller, which is not designed for security. Um, that's okay, but it, it makes it a bit easier to, uh, for an attacker to um, access uh, secrets or data on, on the device if they do a physical theft. Um, Ledger, on the other hand, does use a secure element, uh, which is specifically designed to um, uh, prevent uh, physical access when someone steals a device. That's a very great thing. Uh, but the issue there is uh, in order to run code on the secure element, they have to sign an NDA with the manufacturer. And so the, close, the code is uh, closed source. Important parts of the code are closed source. Um, the problem with this is that uh, in order for a secure element to be labeled a secure element, you have to, uh, the manufacturer has to go through a certification process where it can take um, a year or more in time. It can take a million dollars to go through this. So it's very costly kind of setup. And in the past, it's been reported that uh, manufacturers do not have the incentive to fix bugs that happen. And it's inevitable that bugs will happen. Uh, and so, um, you know, if uh, these, these things are used in ATM cards and stuff like that, where it's probably okay, it's probably an acceptable level, but when it comes to cryptocurrencies where one small bug could cause your transaction to uh, fly away into the, into the ether uh, and not be recoverable, uh, we think this is just a, a no-go. Um, and the reason that the manufacturers... Uh, aren't incentivized to fix bugs is in order to change the code, which is oftentimes at the hardware level. They would need to do a chip redesign. Um, they need to redo the certification process, so another year to market, uh, another million dollars. And so they have a tendency to uh, just ignore uh, these problems. Um, and, you know, it's, it's to a point now where, you know, the, 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 the quality of the, the chips are good, but you know, even if you have a one in a million uh, possibility of a bug happening in some side case or edge case, uh, that still means irreversible loss of funds to people. And in my opinion, that's just a no-go. And so um, the Bitbox 02, we try to take the best of both worlds. So we do use a general purpose microcontroller where all of the code on it is run open source. Uh, and we use only the 
the most well-vetted cryptographic libraries uh, to do that. Uh, but we also combine that with the secure chip. And the secure chip we use purely for um, securing the physical access to the device. And so this is also why uh, we, we try to, um, uh, the, the threat scenario of theft is also uh, something we protect against. Okay, because when I tested it for my Bitcoin Magazine review, which you should also be reading if you're getting informed, what I liked about it was that within the user interface, you were able to connect your full node mm -hmm. and also enable a function which allowed you to have UTXO control. I think it's called coin control in the interface. Yes. Yeah. So these two options, even though they might sound banal or something that should be there, they're not actually in the interfaces of Trezor and Ledger. So that's something that I really appreciate it. And what yeah, I like good point. It's, 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 it's purely on the software layer, so it has not too much to do with the hardware itself, but it's part of our uh, user experience cycle. And I think especially um, coin control, the control of the UTIC, so I consider that very essential because I don't uh, a, want to link with, with, with change. So what, you, what coin, controls, uh, coin control allows you is like forward a single received amount to, let's say, an exchange if you don't want to uh, have a change address, which is, could be bad for privacy, uh, or if there is taint, uh, UTXOs. Uh, uh, there's a lot of taint going on with people sending uh, small amounts to uh, larger addresses so they can track you better. Um, and usually normal, normal wallets will also take those UTXOs uh, and, and spend those coins as well. So manual coin control, uh, I think this is really how it, how it should have been from the beginning. And automatic coin selection is something that people should have been enabled intentionally, intentionally. Yeah, and you also had the batch 32 support from day one, which is something that took other manufacturers a long time to implement. But in regards to coin control, I think it, it manages to fix and address one of the design issues of Bitcoin. Because when you send somebody any amount, they can see everything even in terms of how much you have and how much people who sent you their Bitcoins had. And they can track all of this information all the way to whoever they want to identify. So if you have, for example, 50 Bitcoins and you want to send 0.1 to somebody, you don't want them to see that you have 50 because nowadays that's a lot of money. And if you have just a small UTXO which enables you to send that amount, for example, you have a 0.2 UTXO, you're only going to see that. And that's very useful. Yeah, I mean it's it's not a, a, it's not a mixer, so you, there's still a linkage to your uh, uh, your your formal formal uh, receiving, but you can choose which ones you want to use, which is like uh, a huge benefit in terms of right, received funds or and which ones of those you you're going to spend because otherwise your wallet doesn't make any difference between where you got money from, and this could be. Uh, hurtful for your privacy. Okay, I think the next part of the interview is going to be the toughest one, 
because I want to <laughs> something nice about your competition. And we are going to break this down by manufacturer. So we begin with Trezor because they were the first players on the market. Yeah. So um, just to take one step back. So I appreciate you also listing some of the other um, the features of the wallet. I just wanted to mention uh, one other thing is that our our desktop app is now also a mobile app. Uh, so for Android, we released a beta version, uh, which I think is quite quite cool. Um, so our, our device itself has a USB-C connector, so you can plug it directly into modern Android phones. And we'd be really happy uh, if, if our existing users can go check that out and give us some feedback so we can get it out of beta. Um, so just, sorry for the quick plug. <laughs> and then to come into uh, the next question, uh, say something nice about our competitors. Um, so I, I think, uh, I would say this is not, um, not, not so hard uh, of a thing to do. And I think in any young field, and uh, cryptocurrencies, hardware wallets especially, are a young field, uh, it's a very important thing for the competitors to uh, kind of look out for each other. Because in this sense, you know, uh, what, what's the saying? We're uh, rising tide lifts all boats. I think that really applies in this current field. Uh, and so we're, we're also quite quite happy to make good relationships with our competitors and, uh, you know, try to improve uh, uh, our offerings in, in all ways for everyone. Um, with respect to Trezor, we've had uh, a lot of great relationships with them. Um, what, what really great thing, of course, is their open source uh, nature. Uh, they really stick to the, the ideals around that. Uh, really great community interaction. Um, we've done some uh, responsible disclosures with them, and it's been a really great, uh, great process. Um, so I'd say they're quite, quite professional along that uh, on that end. Uh, and so uh, again, I think we kind of share the ideals of making, uh, you know keeping everything open source, really contributing to the community. Um, of course, we have business models uh, that compete where we try to sell hardware to customers. Uh, but in the end, we think improving the, the whole ecosystem will just be a benefit for everyone, including both of ourselves and uh, the users in the community. Can you also say something that you don't like about Trezor? Um, <laughs> so this is the hard part. <laughs> Uh, let's see. I, I guess, um, uh, yeah, if forced, I would say, uh, they, I think they do a really great job. Uh, I think, you know, the, the hardware they build is, is really nice. The app is really nice. Um, I would say one of the, the negatives is that, uh, theft is not part of their security model for the hardware, and I hope that uh, they're working on solutions to that in the future. Okay, let's move on to Ledger. You'll have to say something nice about them and something that you don't like. Sure. <laughs> so, uh, Ledger, uh, I think quite quite respectable company. Uh, the market leaders in the field, so they're really driving. Um, uh, you know, a lot of uh, adoption and uh, consumer pickup. Um, I think one of the best things about them is their ledger donjon. Um, Charles, who's leading that, is a really great guy. Uh, and 
again, I think he, he shares these, these ideals of uh, the rising tide lifts all ships. Uh, and so he's also very interested in, uh, in our communication to uh, support each other to improve, improve things. And the ledger donjon, if people don't know, is a, a specialized, um, I guess, white hat hacker kind of enclave uh, that's an independent part of Ledger. Um, and they do a lot of really great work, uh, have a lot of great experts uh, in order to um, look at the security of themselves, of course, but also of their competitors uh, and related fields. And I think that's a really great, uh, great asset for the whole ecosystem. Um, as far as uh, things you don't like, um, I guess that's a bit easier. Can use the the, the stereotypical one that uh, they're using the secure element, which means uh, part of their code has to be closed source, uh, which I talked about uh, a bit earlier. Okay, that was easy. And <laughs> think about it, I think the people on Twitter who buy products and then compare are a lot more toxic and a lot meaner than actual you people who are the executives and the creators of the devices. I feel like there is some sort of spirit of camaraderie, maybe. But before I jump to conclusions about that, let me <laughs> because some people say it's a treasure clone of sorts. I, I had the first interview of this season with the CTO of Shapeshift. So what do you think about the KeepKey? Something good and something bad? Yeah, so KeepKey, um... I guess originally they were a Trezor clone a number of years ago, and I think they weren't shy about advertising that and talking about it and uh, really trying to take the, the Trezor model. And again, this is, uh, I think Trezor's okay with it. Uh, the whole open, that's why their code is open source so other people can improve on it. Uh, and they took that code to make a, a, a better, uh, or try to make a better, I guess, um, UX in terms of hardware. Um, so, but naturally, in time, things do diverge. And so it's, I wouldn't necessarily call them a Trezor clone anymore. Uh, in time, you know, as you have your own hardware platform and your own devs, uh, things will diverge and you'll, you'll end up making different design decisions. Um, and so the keep key, I would say, in that sense, uh, the, the positives and negatives are similar to Trezor. Um, so the, the negative in the sense that... Uh, you know, they don't have the secure chip inside, so the threat model doesn't include uh, theft. Um, the positive is, uh, I guess, uh, since since they got bought by Shapeshift, um, they have quite nice usability uh, in terms of the integration with uh, Shapeshift, uh, which is quite uh, quite a nice thing and something that we're also interested uh, in exploring. Okay, now comes the harder part. What do you think about the cold card? Because they don't like you, as far as I <laughs> They used to like us. Um, and so I, I, think, I, think they, I think they still like us, but we'll, we'll see. I guess you'll have an interview with uh, Rudolfo later, um, assuming. Um, so cold card, uh, uh, I, I think they, have, uh, they do a really great job of, uh, you know, they have a really well-defined market. Uh, target market, which is the people who care uh, mostly about security uh, and willing to sacrifice usability. And so the, the, that brings up immediately uh, one of the negatives. So usability is a challenge uh, with, when using their device, just because you need to have a bit of um, 
uh, more expert level uh, knowledge. Um, and that, that's due to their, their design choices. They did that on purpose. Uh, and so um, on the other hand, you know, it's really optimized uh, for security in a lot of ways, uh, which is a great thing. Um, and the, I guess the, uh, the issues with why you say they don't like us, uh, I'm not sure if we'll get into this later or not, but it has to do with uh, responsible disclosure that we made to them. And I would say probably there was some miscommunication uh, along the lines of what responsible disclosure actually really meant in the end uh, and how that process would play out. I guess they're kind of a, a newer player on the market. So uh, the protocols in place for um, uh, what steps to go through were kind of maybe not completely in place. And so when we did make our responsible disclosure, uh, there was some kickback from them about whether or not the severity level was really what we think it is and so on and so on. And these are all things that we've gone through in the past also, uh, and Trezor and Ledger have gone through in the past when uh, first dealing with, uh, you know, security reports and, and things like that. I think it's just, um, uh, it, you know, it's a, it's a natural part of the game and, you know, getting, having a good bug bounty program in place and getting uh, high quality feedback from, you know, there's some really excellent uh, brains in the field, uh, which you'll have on your interview uh, course in the future, uh, that really know uh, uh, ways to hack stuff. And like Yona said earlier, nothing's unhackable. Uh, and so the, the thing that we need to do as uh, hardware wallet manufacturers is be uh, really receptive to that and uh, fast responsive. And they were. Uh, they were receptive and responded really fast and put out a fix really fast. Um, and really be able to, um, um, you know, be receptive to that and take that and uh, improve the products. So how do you comment on the fact that the Bitbox 02 and the cold card MK3 use mm -hmm. the same secured chip? Yep. That's a coincidence. Um, so I can't, I can't say, you know, what their full design decisions are. Uh, so the idea of, uh, I guess, uh, how we, we call this dual chip approach. So having both a general purpose microcontroller and a secure chip uh, that started, um, I guess we're the first ones to do that about four years ago with our, our first Bitbox. Um, you can argue about the, the way we implemented it was maybe not um, ideal, um, but we kind of started that. And then with the second version Bitbox um, and the cold card, uh, they use the same uh, architecture, the same uh, chipsets. Uh, and so I think, in our opinion, it's uh, it made the most sense as far as the security architecture. And I think, you know, if you research the different chips that are available and things like that, it's not too hard to come to your own conclusion that this is um, a good approach. And so I think that uh, both of us using the same uh, approach with the chipset uh, uh, kind of maybe valid co-validates uh, our design choices. And so I'm quite, quite happy that they're doing that. Uh, okay. Is there any other hardware wallet manufacturer that you think should be mentioned in this section before we move on with another question? Hmm. <laughs> uh, 
Now, this is the hard question. <laughs> you put me on the spot because I, I don't want to uh, make anyone left out feel bad. Um, so I'll, I'll say probably it makes sense to, to not list anyone in particular, uh, but there are a number of other uh, hardware wallet vendors on the market, uh, a lot of newer ones that came out in the last years. Uh, and you know, I don't want to say too much about them. There's some interesting uh, and Quite, quite intriguing design choices, um, but in terms of uh, you know promoting them or not, I, I'd prefer to wait and see you know how how they do on the market and how they do with with hacks and so on and things like that. Yeah, I think it also needs a lot of time that people analyze the code, people analyze the potential vulnerabilities. Um, all new players, they I think they just need to go through one, two, three years of experience before you realistically can can judge them in any ways. That's fair. So sometimes I feel like this is the golden age of hardware wallets because there are so many manufacturers that just take the GitHub repository, they fork it, they create their own devices. And sometimes they bring some interesting designs. And what I appreciate mostly about hardware wallets is when they look like regular household devices. And something that I like about the Bitbox O2, by the way, is that it has a mail connector. And I don't know why a lot of manufacturers don't do that because it looks like a USB flash drive when it's not turned on. It makes sense for it to have that mail connector. Plus, some people who are very security-minded will say that the cable that you're using can be compromised. So if you're cutting the cable in the middle, then I guess that's an extra good security step. Yeah. So the the, bit, the original Bitbox 01 also had a, a male uh, connector, USB-A, uh, uh, and the Bitbox 02 has a USB-C male connector. Um, so... Originally, uh, a lot of what you say is exactly what we were thinking about before. Um, first of all, you know, cables, um, they're kind of annoying to carry around, but they could also be compromised uh, by people sticking in um, uh, some spy microchips inside with, um, you know, some kind of wireless uh, output, uh, which has been done in the past. Um, and so we wanted to not need to use a cable, and we also thought, um, you know, just a cable-free approach is also a lot easier for usability. So you can just plug it directly into your computer or plug it directly into your phone. Uh, and so those are some of the design considerations we were thinking about. I think but also, we should, we should not forget that we should also ship it with the cable. So people who want to use a cable, there's nothing that stops you even with a male connector. So we have a female-to-male um, cable for extensions. So it's it's possible to use a cable, but mail was the decision because you, it's just way more natural to use it with your computer or smartphone. Yeah, and it looks legit. It looks like a USB flash drive. I think. And yeah, that's also. I think that's also a feature that. Um, sorry to interrupt. That's also a feature because we think when you travel with such a device you don't want that it, that it looks like a hard wallet in the first place because it's, it's also, uh, yeah, it can also be problematic if you cross borders and anything like this. So um, we made it not that you will see our logo or 
big Bitcoin or Bitbox on, on top of that uh, thing uh, in, in first sight. Yeah, and I think the ledger has a very good design because it looks like lots of USB flash drives. But when you look at the connector, you're going to notice that it's female. And I think that can give it away as a hardware wallet. I actually had an entire article where I commented on what the devices look like. And for example, on the cold card, I said that it looks like a calculator, but anyone who takes a closer look will notice that the screen is way too small. When you're using a calculator, you want to have more digits for input. Mm. And also, you don't have the buttons for mathematical operations. So mm. if you don't have a plus, a minus, a divide, a multiply, then what kind of calculator is it? And that's very noticeable. Mm. Yeah, that'd be pretty cool if they come out with a new model um, with a calculator plausible deniability feature. I I'd like to see that. Yeah, yeah but, but I mean, I, I guess in the end, you know, any border control officer, uh, you can provide them a list, of maybe six devices, and uh, in case they should seize those devices or look after them. So I think it's even with, you know, the most stealth device, people will recognize it. And trained people will recognize this as a hardware wallet. But I think for, it's, it's great that naive people will uh, maybe have a harder time to figure out what it is. Yeah, you, you don't want to show off. And I think from mm -hmm. the perspective, maybe that the Trezor has the worst of designs, as it looks like some kind of remote control for your car. But unless you have a car and you're known to actually use that kind of device, then people will be suspicious. Yeah, that's true. Anyway, let's move on with another question. I feel like this dirty part was so graceful. <laughs> you said everything that was nice to say. And now let me ask about the original BitBox and why it was discontinued and what kind of issues that you think it had and have been fixed in the O2 model. Yeah. So, yeah, original BitBox, we talked about it a little bit. It's originally called Digital BitBox when it first came out. Um, that's been on the market for over three and a half years. Uh, and so, and we recently... Uh, uh, discontinued, um, we, I should say, we, we didn't discontinue support. We stopped sell, selling it um, last month. And we will continue support officially for one more year, um, possibly longer than that. And I'd say one of the misconceptions um, that we realized after the fact is we use the term uh, end of life. Uh, and that's a very technical term uh, in in uh, retail hardware products. And it doesn't mean that after one year from now, the device is just gonna die and go away. Uh, it, do it doesn't mean that. It just means that there's no guaranteed uh, updates uh, for it uh, after a year from now. Uh, but you'll still be able to use it. And so you can still use it with our uh, older apps or you can still use it with Electrum. Uh, it works with Electrum for a number of years now. 
Um, so just, just to clarify that. Uh, and so then the question is, why, why did we choose to discontinue it? Um, so it has been, just like every other hardware wallet, it has been, uh, uh, vulnerabilities have been reported on it, um, but all the vulnerabilities reported on it have been fixed. Uh, and so uh, it's not an issue that there's something that's not fixed on it. I'd say the issue is more so um, we felt that in, in the long run, it wouldn't be competitive on the market because uh, mainly it doesn't have a screen. Um, in addition, not having a screen um, makes it a bit harder to do the security maintenance. Uh, and so uh, what we did without the screen was we had a secure connection to a mobile app. And so using uh, a mobile app, uh, we, we phrased it as basically a secure, large remote screen. Um, and that worked, but then uh, this introduces another another channel, uh, communication channel, uh, where people can attack. And uh, getting that right uh, uh, takes some effort, uh, and so it's also uh, a maintenance uh, issue, uh, like a dev resources issue on our end in order to uh, continue to um, uh, maintain it. We think, like, right again, right now, all the vulnerabilities are fixed, but there could be more vulnerabilities found in the future uh, somewhere uh, with that channel. And so th those are the, I guess, the main reasons for, for discontinuing it. Um, and again, we, we, we don't want to leave our existing users, uh, you know, out in the blue. Uh, and so we do, we will continue support. And uh, of course, if you have uh, issues with it, do, do contact us. Uh, do contact us at our own support channels and we'll try to uh, take care of you like we would anyone else, uh, any of our other customers. Um, so, um, yeah, so that, that's the reason it was discontinued. Um, and uh, it, an additional benefit to that is, uh, you know, time and dev resources are limited. And so if we can put more more time into uh, the Bitbox O2, which we think is a much stronger competitor uh, in the field, uh, and also into our app, uh, trying to make that uh, more usable, try to add features that the users want. Um, we, th we see this as a, a long run win in the end for, for our customers. Maybe that this will be a stupid question, but is there any kind of backwards compatibility when you back up on a Bitbox O1 with the SD card to insert it into DO2 and have it work? Yeah, so no, it's not a stupid question at all. Um, we definitely wanted to do that, but unfortunately it's not the case. And the reason for that is we, um, for the Bitbox 01, uh, I guess the standards for um, like backups and mnemonics, like BIP32, BIP44, uh, were just coming out. Uh, and so when we, uh, decided what kind of format we were going to make for, for the backups. Uh, they weren't following the exact standards. We, we tried to do something we thought made more sense, was more secure. Uh, but in the end, um, uh, the market, uh, hardware wallets and software wallets adopted uh, these other standards. And so when we made the Bitbox 02, uh, we decided it would be more... Uh, make more sense uh, to have some kind of compatibility with the industry standard. And so the, the backups are uh, different. So they, they're not gonna be uh, forward compatible or backward compatible. Um, that said, I would say if you switch um, wallets, uh, I think it's good practice um, to 
make kind of, I guess, a, a fresh wallet. Uh, by that, I mean sweeping the funds from uh, your old seed, uh, your old hardware wallet, your old software wallet into a new hardware wallet. And then you can be confident that, uh, you know, if you um, throw away or misplace your, your old hardware wallet because you're not using it anymore, you forget about it, that someone doesn't come along and just take it and can guess your password or uh, social engineer you to figure out the password uh, and then access the funds without you being aware. Okay. So we previously established that the cold card and the Bitbox 02 have the same secure chip, but mm -hmm. how would you compare that chip with the one that's inside the ledger? Yeah. Um, so I touched on this a little bit earlier when talking about the security, uh, our security architecture versus ledger. And so just to uh, go into that a little bit more. Um, so the cold card and us are, are very similar. Uh, and we are quite different than uh, the ledger approach. And so the ledger approach uses um, a secure element where they actually run a lot of the hardware wallet code on side or inside of that secure element. Um, and this is why, uh, again, with the NDAs and so on, that some of their code is closed source. Um, and so the cold card and us, uh, we use the secure, uh, the secure chip uh, for a different purpose. We don't run the actual hardware wallet code on it. Uh, we're more using it as, uh, I guess, the gateway to um, uh, authenticate your device or log into your device. Um, and so in that sense, um, uh, we can use uh, open source, well-vetted uh, cryptographic libraries. Uh, for example, we're using the, the libsecp library in, that's used in Bitcoin Core, which we think is the, by, by far the best uh, and safest cryptographic library. I know um, uh, just, just to talk about um, bugs in, in libraries, so uh, OpenSSH, OpenSSL, um, is a very, very common, well-used library. Uh, but during the development of the LibSecP, they found uh, uh, during a sanity test, they found a difference in uh, what the LibSecP library produced versus these OpenSSH libraries, the cryptographic libraries. And it turned out that there was a, a bug in, in an edge case in, in, the, uh, in the other OpenSSH library. Um, and so, so many people have looked at us, so much testing has gone into um, this particular uh, library that you know, we, we think um, to do our, our users justice, we should be using this. And we think uh, other hardware wallets should, should adopt it also. Also, you mentioned the design similarities between the cold card and the Bitbox 02. Mm -hmm. uh, this might be another dumb question, but is there a compatibility with backups so you take the sd card from the bitbox and put it in the cold card and it just works um uh as far as i'm aware no uh i think uh i'm not exactly familiar with how they're doing um like wallet recovery at the moment uh but i believe uh with the cold card you have to enter the the mnemonics through the uh the user interface in the screen uh and not via the backup but I'm not, I'm not sure exactly on that point where they're at right now. And so in that sense, the SD card uh, wouldn't just work, um, but since we're using the, uh, the BIP standards, then um, if you export the word list from the Bitbox02, then you would be able to import that into cold card. 
at the time right now when we record this, the Bitbox O2 has been launched on the market for a couple of months, maybe. Mm -hmm. And what is the feature that got most praise from your users when you got feedback? Yeah, so we've been quite quite happy with the reviews. Um, we're making a list on our website if, if other people are interested in uh, getting some third-party opinions on our device. Uh, and what I'm maybe most happy about is uh, a lot of great uh, feedback about the user experience uh, being both simple and even recommended for, for new users, but then also um, having... Uh, the expert feature is still available uh, so that, you know, some of the things you said like uh, coin control uh, or connecting your own node uh, to our app, uh, for example, um, being possible. Uh, and so in general, it's, it's maybe not a, a good idea to uh, try to make a, a, a one-size-fits-all solution, but um, I think we were able to do that uh, with our device, uh, which is uh, quite nice. Um, so it's approachable for, for new users that don't have a deep crypto knowledge, but it still offers some advanced uh, expert features that uh, uh, people uh, appreciate. Um, the hardware design is also a general point that users appreciate. Uh, it's aesthetics and also, as you mentioned before, it's discrete um, uh, appearance so that you don't you wouldn't recognize it as a, a hardware wallet per se um, and yeah uh, it's also important to note we have um, uh, two versions of our hardware wallet out uh, the hardware itself is the same but we the, the former on it's different we have a Bitcoin only version which has gotten a lot of uh, uh, positive feedback and we also have a Bitcoin or um, sorry a bitbox multi edition uh, which also has some support for uh, different altcoins and also uh, u2f second factor authentication all right so the next two questions are for power users mm -hmm. And the first one is, what kind of advice would you give to people who decide not to use the Bitbox app and go for mm -hmm. Electrum or Wasabi? Yeah. Yeah, right now, um, the Bitbox O2 is, uh, we're working on, a, on an Electrum plugin. Um, in, in, at the very beginning, we identified the plugin landscape as one of the problems in the hardware wallet space. Um, because there's there's a lack of a standard how a, an existing hot or software wallet can interact with the hardware wallet. So uh, what we right now have is kind of a plugin uh, infrastructure like Electrum has a bunch of plugins where the plugins are maintained within the code base of Electrum. So that makes it almost impossible for a hardware wallet vendor to control the release cycle. So imagine there's a, a bug, a critical bug, uh, that makes us like uh, knock on the door of uh, Electrum and maybe beg them to do a release, which they could refuse for political reasons or whatever. So the whole plugin infrastructure is not ideal for security uh, in general, and especially in our case with you know, the whole wall of plugins that could have potential problems. And there is actually, uh, or I mean, back in 2015, I started to write on a standard uh, how uh, software wallets could interact with hardware wallets. There hasn't been uh, any or a lot of progress in that sense. 
Um, but there is the library, um, HWI library, that has been created by a bunch of developers. That seems to be the future, uh, a future glue element that could make it easy, easy and possible for soft models and hardware wallets. Yeah. But right now, we we uh, we strongly recommend to use uh, our software, Bitbox O2. Yeah. So that that said, um, uh, we we look quite positively at Electrum and Thomas, who's running it. Um, it's a really really great project. I think they're doing doing things the right way. Um, and at the moment, uh, our original Bitbox does have support. Uh, the Bitbox O2 does not have support yet. Um, uh, but we're working on um, uh, making that available uh, in the very near future. Uh, and also for Electrum, uh, for the HWI um, uh, library that Jonas mentioned. Now, this goes back to that discussion that you had on the Stefan Levera podcast. And I don't want to re reiterate that, but maybe we can make a short summary. Why is the Bitbox O2 not as friendly with multi-sig configurations as, for example, the Trezor Model T? Yes, that's that's a good point. I mean, if if we look at multi-sig, multi-sig has been uh, very much proven on on the uh, on-chain side, so um, it works. The cryptographic assumptions are absolutely uh, bulletproof. Um, but the problem with multi-sig is the whole uh, user experience and the security assumption a hardware wallet makes. So when you create, a, as an example, when you create a receiving address, uh, you need to have your cosigners XPOPs or at least a, a public key. So if you, if the, if the concept or if the implementation in, in, in the hardware wallet firmware has not been made correctly, it could be possible for an attacker to create a fake um, receiving address. And in the worst case, your, your coins are locked up with an attacker's pop key or even uh, you eventually send your coins to, to the Nirvana. So, and also we have uh, um, uh, one of our employees, Cosper Adder, has just released uh, a vulnerability um, for Trezor and Ledger that actually can make these funds really uh, set, set on the risk stack. So I think multi-sig on the, on the concept on, in, in the Bitcoin chain is absolutely sane, but there, the concept how hard a wallet has to deal with multi-sig that hasn't been really worked out yet. So that's why we haven't implemented and served it to the users right now and rather worked on the conceptual layers. That's also why we have uh, discovered those vulnerabilities. Yeah, and just, just to add on that, so Casper um, did really great work on that, and just a day or two ago, um, we actually released a blog post uh, describing, it's, it's titled The Pitfalls of Multisig uh, on Hardware Wallets. And so there's a lot of uh, material there that goes into further depth about uh, why it's not so uh, straightforward to, to do security with multisig. Yeah, and the conclusion we currently do, I mean, it's a simple conclusion, but it could be more harmful to use multi-sig currently than use single-sig in certain uh, uh, situations. So before that has been sorted out uh, on the conceptual layer, I think using single-sig is still, or maybe split your, your, your funds onto multiple hardware wallets, it's maybe the better option right now, especially for users without a lot of experience.
I was about to mention your research team because in the last few weeks, you have made a lot of disclosures and you have found vulnerabilities in the cold card, in the treasure, and in the ledger, which is impressive. Yeah. So um, this, um, just uh, sorry to interrupt, but just uh, to give some context there. So it's not that we actively sought out to find vulnerabilities in our competitors. Uh, it was more so uh, we really want to put multisig into um, production for for our our products. Uh, and one of the first things we did was look at and see how um, the others did it. Uh, and when we did that, we ended up finding. Uh, uh, a number of vulnerabilities that we uh, responsibly disclosed uh, to each of them. Uh, and uh, that's kind of where, where this, this came out. And so that's also why uh, all of these responses kind of came out at the same time uh, is because uh, they were found at the same time. And again, if, if you check out our blogs, uh, you can find a link in our website, shiftcrypto.ch. Uh, it'll give you a lot more details about each of these uh, situations. So would you say that the responses that you got were positive? Um, so the responses from the community, I would say uh, the, the vast majority were positive. Uh, the interaction with uh, uh, Trezor, again, was uh, really, really great, really amazing. Um, Ledger also, um, uh, in the end, they said that uh, uh, the, the stuff we disclosed was expected behavior. Uh, you can read more about it, but the, the conversation with them was very uh, good also. Um, yeah, cold card, uh, you had mentioned before, um, they, didn't, they weren't so happy, I guess, with uh, the severity level that we labeled uh, with some of their uh, vulnerabilities, which is, um, yeah, and it led to a bit of a, uh, what happens on Twitter oftentimes, uh, a little bit of a, a heated Twitter discussion. You can call it that. Uh, but in the end, I should say that uh, cold card, uh, especially with multisig, probably did do the best job of all of them. Uh, and so uh, it's a little interesting to see the, um, um, yeah, it's unfortunate it became too heated because in the end, it probably wasn't such such a, a big deal um, in the end. So. So the final question that I have for you, and this isn't the final question of the interview because there are two more on Twitter that people mm -hmm. have asked, but the final one that I have for you is about your future plans and what are you planning to do on this hardware wallet market in the future and how will the Bitbox O2 evolve in time? I mean, we first maybe can tap into the Bitbox space project we have started uh, a few months, or is it even a year, longer than a year ago, mm -hmm. uh, which is, is, is kind of a full node, um, including a hardware wallet, or we call it the secure element, um, which is a complete open source project. Also, the hardware uh, might, be, um, might be open to uh, build, build it on your own which is, is kind of a, a thing we think would be very interesting for a lot of users. And if you haven't read uh, about the Bitbox Space project, I think it's totally worth to go to the shiftcrypto.ch website and read it up and we have started or we are in the process of shipping the first betas, uh, beta devices to a bunch of people. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, just to expand on that. so. 
um, we're trying to, I guess, uh, of course, we're interested in developing the, the Bitbox O2 further, uh, but we're also interested in expanding our, our product offerings. And so the base, um, it's a full Bitcoin node, uh, eventually Lightning will be added also. Uh, and so we think this addresses uh, a lot of the privacy um, concerns that are, are still an issue uh, in, in Bitcoin especially, uh, whereas uh, hardware wallets solve the security issue. Um, what, what that means is um, if you use a hardware wallet, you still, um, unless you can connect your own full node, which we offer that uh, option in our app, but the vast majority of people uh, don't. Uh, and so when you need to check out how many coins you have in your hardware wallet, you have to use, you have to use a third-party service. Could be us, could be Trezor Ledger. I'm not saying uh, any of us would... Um, uh, actually spy on people, but, uh, you know, in the future, we could be forced to if a government wants to, um, you know, uh, forces us to check out someone's specific address. And so if you're using our service to probe the blockchain, um, basically your whole financial history is exposed. And that's something that people tend to uh, not want to expose. I know there's all this talk about people don't care about privacy anymore, you know, People post everything on Facebook and so on. Uh, but one thing they don't really post on Facebook every week is their uh, bank statements, for example. And so I think there are certain things that people do want to have private, and the Bitbox space addresses that. Uh, as far as the hardware wallet itself, yeah, we have a lot of ideas. So multi-sig, of course, as we mentioned before, is something we want to add on. Um, we want to continue to improve the usability. We're quite happy that uh, people like the usability already, but there's always ways we can continue to improve that. Uh, we have the mobile app uh, coming, which a lot of people have given us pretty good feedback on, uh, multi-language support, things like that. Um, but really uh, continuing to improve on uh, the overall user experience, the usability, also try to give uh, different types of services that, that people need, um, such as uh, fiat on-ramps and things like that. All right. So Track Bender from Twitter wants to, yeah, he wants to know where the inspiration came from for your devices, what's behind the Bitbox base and tap projects, and what we might expect down the road. So it's similar to my question, but more specific to the product. Okay, we, we answered some of the base stuff already, but maybe, maybe Jonas, you want to jump in? Well, yeah, I think the base project, um, it's probably worth to read up further on, uh, on our, uh, our website. Um, but there's a lot of um, possibilities people can build with it. it. Is it maybe a mixer that automatically mixes, mixes coins? It could be like lightning situations, uh, which HSM. There could be push services that you can like information when you have received coins in a secure way. Um, but in general, for a lot of people, privacy um, is equally or even more important than the funds themselves. Because, you know, uh, if you are in a, in a regime where, where disclosing your, uh, your, your financial information can bring you in prison, um, that, could be, uh, that could be a situation where privacy is more, uh, more valuable than, 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 than the, the wealth itself. So I think having privacy as an option is, is super important and also it's, it's also combined with trust so if if you're using a third-party service it's not only about privacy it's also about trust if you have received coins they could omit those they could not show you those or they could even show you fake coins in terms of 
unconfirmed um, incoming um, UTXOs. Yeah, and so I, I guess at a uh, at a higher level, um, you know, all of us in our team, Jonas and I especially, but our, our whole team is quite, um, you know, motivated by just the whole uh, cryptocurrency revolution. I, I guess you can use that word, uh, where we think. You know, it, it's really early right now. Uh, a lot of the infrastructure, a lot of the tools still need to be put in place so that it's easier uh, for, for the whole world to take advantage of the opportunities that uh, cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin present. And so from a company point of view, um, we really want to give these tools. And we think uh, hardware especially will play a crucial role. Um, and uh, we think hardware is the... Uh, self-sovereign hardware is the best uh, uh, solution uh, available. And so that includes, uh, uh, you know, solving the security needs with hardware wallets, solving the privacy needs with uh, the Bitbox space and full nodes, uh, solving usability issues uh, with our Bitbox app. Um, and we think, you know, if you look at what makes cryptocurrency special, it's these, these great properties like uh, being decentralized, being permissionless, uh, censorship resistant, and so on. And we think if you don't have, um, um, you know, self-custody, self-sovereign solutions, if you don't hold your own keys, of course, you don't, not your keys, not your funds, um, there can be problems in the long run uh, in the sense that, uh, you know, if, if everyone just puts their funds on centralized exchanges, can ignore all the, the hacking risks. Um, but this is kind of a slippery slope back into uh, the traditional way of doing things in the financial world. And it's also a slippery slope in the traditional way that governments uh, can exert control. So for example, um, you know, if, if you're a crypto company trying to open a bank account, uh, there's a whole bunch of hurdles you have to go through in order to, to do that. And the government's really, really paying attention to everything. Um, and so these, these properties that make crypto special uh, slowly, slowly fade away. And we think that the only way to prevent that from happening is uh, uh, self-sovereign solutions and decentralized hardware also. And so I guess that's, that's kind of a, a bigger picture motivation. Um, one of the things uh, um, in the question also was uh, something we call TEP. Uh, what TEP stands for is Tamper Evident Packaging. And so it is a, a, a physical object, but it's not uh, electronic circuits. It's, it's a quite simple thing. And one of the biggest issues um, in hardware wallet field, uh, but also in a number of other fields, is uh, how do you secure the supply chain? Um, and so how do you uh, protect against someone uh, tampering or replacing your device um, on the way from being shipped to the user? Uh, a really great example that came out a year or two ago uh, was with one of Ledger's resellers where uh, the reseller opened the box, uh, they programmed the device, uh, set up a wallet on it, they changed the instruction manual. Uh, and so when the device got to the user, the instruction manual said, you're all set, your wallet's ready, uh, have fun, go, go at it. Uh, but of course, the, the reseller then had the, the private key. So if you put any coins on it, uh, the reseller could just steal it. Uh, and so, um, you know, device attestation, things like that, they help, but they don't, they don't solve that 
this particular situation. Uh, and so we tried to think of a solution that can solve that, and this is this temper-evident packaging. Again, um, we just launched, uh, I guess, Alpha. So we're shipping some Alpha devices for early testers to people. Uh, and on our website, you can read more about it. Uh, the concept is, uh, I'd say, pretty simple, where we have some kind of uh, it's hard to explain in words, but it's easy if you watch the video. <laughs> but to try, uh, the concept is we have uh, a little pouch with some small beads in it. Um, you, you shake it up, uh, and so you can get a lot of entropy uh, in the random pattern of these small beads inside this pouch. And then you vacuum seal this whole thing together with the, the enclosure and whatever you want to protect inside. And that locks into place what we call a, a temporary fingerprint, uh, this pattern. Um, we take a photo of that before it leaves uh, our um, warehouses, and when the user gets it, there's a QR code. They can go um, scan that in. They can see uh, uh, what the picture looks like uh, through our through our website, and they can compare and they can look at the this temporary fingerprint, this pattern of um, uh, the beads in the pouch, and they can see whether or not um, the device was opened along the way. Uh, because in order to tamper with the device, you'll have to break the vacuum. And once you break the vacuum, the pattern will disappear. All right. So I don't think the tap was around the last time I checked your website, but it's definitely interesting. And somebody, NK Tech, wants to know what your take is on QR codes and if you think this is a future step for hardware developers. I'm not sure what he means, but you possibly know better. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think I know what he means. Uh, I mean, um, usually the problem is how you get unsigned transactions into your hardware wallet. Most hardware wallet vendors currently use um, a USB port, so you connect uh, to your computer through USB, and we, all the other wallets consider that as an insecure port, so whatever comes in there will be verified on the device with the on-screen um, uh, approach. Or you can use the SD card approach that has uh, mainly call card uses with the BSPTs. And the third approach would be using QR codes. So imagine your wallet could display, uh, your, your wallet on the desktop could display um, a bunch of QR codes. You read those QR codes with your hardware wallet, and this would kind of bypass the whole need for a cable or even connect it to your computer. This is kind of a nice approach, but also has problems. I mean, there, there were bugs in QR code libraries where actually reading a QR code could produce a buffer overflow, maybe in the worst case could make you, uh, could, could root your device in the worst case. So I think um, QR code is not safe from any types of vulnerabilities, but it would be a cool uh, way how you could air gap your device. Yeah, so just to expand on that, I think psychologically air gapping your device by only reading QR codes and um, displaying QR codes is a nice concept. Um, but I think in the end, um, uh, it's just a different way to transmit data from your computer to a device. And so you still need to transfer the same types of data, uh, which is what is the transaction, how much do you want to send, and things like that. Uh, and so a lot of the like attack vectors, um, having a QR uh, code modality, uh, it doesn't really change uh, these attack vectors. Uh, and so it's still the same data. 
Uh, and so it's how the, the microcontroller on the hardware wallet interprets that data, which is where the, the attack would come in. Uh, and that would be the same if you're using a USB cable or a QR code reader. Um, of course, uh, a big difference then is the, the bandwidth. And so a QR code reader has a lot, lot lower bandwidth um, than a USB. Um, so you don't need too much bandwidth for, for hardware wallet transactions. Sometimes you do, but usually uh, that's not really an issue. Uh, and so one, one of the advantages there, I guess, would be um, um, time-wise, a bit less time to actually um, uh, uh, perform an attack. Uh, but in the end, uh, a lot of the attacks are, are similar. So I know that I'm not going to name any names, but a very important person for a very important hardware wallet manufacturer said that users can basically just go on eBay and buy used hardware wallets and they're going to be safe. Are you going to make any kind of recommendations like that? Uh, never. <laughs> you, want to, you want to go into depth? Uh, yeah, I think the, the supply chain risk is just too high. Uh, yeah, it's very complicated, but I, I would definitely not recommend to buy seconds, like, uh, secondhand rewards. Yeah, so the, it brings up the concept again that, um, you know, given enough time and money, anything can be hacked. Um, also, uh, things can be forged. Uh, so you can, you can make um, imitations of different hardware wallets. I think that happened to Trezor in the past. Uh, and so buying, buying a used hardware wallet on uh, eBay or whatever, um, uh, all of these different types of attacks are possible. A forged device, um, you know, uh, some kind of modified device or, you know, a preset up wallet with different seeds, a uh, reprogrammed device. Um, it's, it's quite, uh, I, I wouldn't risk it. Uh, so, I mean, for, for small amounts of funds, it's probably okay, but um, I, I just wouldn't trust that for, for any significant, holding any significant amount of funds. I just love the skepticism in this space. <laughs> Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. And it also brings up the question, what means secondhand? I mean, obviously, we think it's like somebody has used it before, but it, it's also the question, what if you buy it from a reseller? So it's like it's getting in the same direction. Uh, obviously, it's not because the, the product is still sealed in, in some ways, but what means sealed? It's up to like easy to reseal or not. Um, but I think we, we've did the max we could to make sure product cannot be spoofed in any ways in terms of loading uh, different firmwares. It's impossible without a hardware wallet. And it should be very easy to visually inspect that it, that it is okay. But again, it's just impossible. Uh, you know, we, we can't say impossible. Just um, try to make it very, very hard. All right. So we mentioned purchasing the Bitbox 02. Where can people listening to this get the device? So um, go to our website, shiftcrypto.ch. You'll see a, a shop link, and you can buy our device there, along with some, some interesting little accessories also. Uh, also, that link will bring you to um, 
a different list of resellers we have around the world. Uh, and so an advantage of uh, a reseller is um, a bit cheaper uh, shipping costs uh, if you can find one in your own area. But yeah, check out our website, shiftcrypto.ch. Do you also sell devices at conferences that you attend or in places where people can buy without signing up with their address and full name for the delivery? Uh, yes. So at the conferences we attend, um, um, we do sell a limited number of devices. Um, also, if you're in Switzerland, one of our resellers has set up an anonymous way to um, uh, purchase devices. So you could you can check that out through our reseller links. All right. I, I think the last question belongs to Staticus. And I cool. did. <laughs> okay, this is surprising. I posted a GIF on Twitter and asked if this is a tag team or versus podcast mode. Um, I didn't see the GIF, so I can't comment. <laughs> Staticus is, is one of our team members, uh, for those not aware. Um, yeah, he works on the Bitbox project. No, Bitbox. The Bitbox base. He's the project lead on that. Yeah. Mode. So I'm sorry, Aesthetics. I don't get the question. <laughs> uh, I'm going to show it to you because he also asked if the winner gets the Lambo. And I'm not sure if you saw the title card, but it has a retro 1980s Lambo in the middle. <laughs> You probably don't spend much time on Twitter, which is possibly for the best. <laughs> well, possibly. Uh, <laughs> Jonas is on there. Jonas is on yeah. there a lot. <laughs> Indeed. All right. I don't have any more questions for you. If you have anything to add before we wrap up this interview. Um, no, it was, uh, it was a pleasure talking to you, Vlad. It was great getting to know you um, at the last conference. And so uh, thank you very much for this opportunity. Uh, look forward to talking with you a lot in the future also. Yeah, thank you very much, Vlad, for doing this. Appreciate it. Well, we said it at the same time. So it must be mutual. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hear a few words from the show's sponsors. LXMI is a European cryptocurrency exchange whose name is inspired by Lakshmi, the Hindu goddess of wealth, good fortune, and prosperity. It's one of the regulated and legal cryptocurrency exchanges. On LXMI, you can buy bitcoins with most fiat currencies, and you can also do trading with top altcoins. They follow the Not Your Keys, Not Your Bitcoins philosophy with their integrated non-custodial wallet, which helps you manage your own private keys. So if you're into trading, then you don't have to worry about having your crypto frozen by whatever political decisions, since you're empowered to hold and move your coins whenever you wish. It's great to have new players like LXMI that respect your financial sovereignty. LXMI is launching in 2020. And for more information, please check out lxmi.io. If you're not into trading, it's recommended to move your coins to a hardware wallet or some other form of cold storage. And in this episode, 
you're about to find out why. Please keep in mind that this is just an ad for a sponsor of the show. It's not meant to serve as financial advice, and you're responsible to do your own research before buying anything and act according to your own decisions. Embrace your financial sovereignty with agency and precaution. Hey you! Looking for the simplest way to get started sending satoshis on the Lightning Network? Then sign up with your social account on BottlePay now. BottlePay is your premium Lightning service for unfairly cheap and effortless Bitcoin payments. It is powerful enough to offer all of the payment features you need while also being simple enough for no coiners to understand. No more confusion and headaches. Send Satoshis instantly to anyone on a supported social network in a couple of clicks. Log in today at bottle.li and receive 1,000 free Satoshis to get you started sending and receiving Bitcoins. Follow the steps to become a power user and earn even more. Head over to bottle.li and get started now.